so guy nick mason sourceful of secrets of which we are um two-fifths right are we're going back out on the road in the summer across the uk we are we're, it's all of june so brace yourself what's it called it's called the set the control store what a brilliant name who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello and welcome to the Rock on Tours podcast. I am Guy Pratt. And I'm Gary Kemp. And this week on the show, we're talking to a legendary guitarist, a producer, a member of Roxy Music and a good friend, Phil Manzanera. Nice to be here. So I'm, 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 Your smiling faces. I know, I, know, I, know, I know you well, but I'm still thrilled that I know the bloke from Roxy Music uh, and, and that wonderful inside sleeve from um, in that, the, the album picture that had you with the, with the fly glasses With on the bug eyes, and, yeah. And, and the famous and the drop. Firebird. No, no, oh, I, had the no firebird. I had the Firebird. Where did all Red those drum. guitars come from? Um, I think the Hagstrom was, could have been Paul's, I can't remember. Bizarrely, Paul uh, Thompson. Paul Thompson. <laughs> what would he be doing? Well, I'm not. I, I, I can't remember. I have to Google it to, to find out who owned what. Obviously, Eno's snake guitar was his own snake guitar. You know, which is about a tenor from somewhere in Shepherd's Bush. And the Les Paul was the John Porter's Les Paul, who, who the oh. bass player, who uh, that, that I borrowed on a lot of uh, to use on a lot of the albums. Yeah. And where did the Firebird come from? How did you find it? The guy who uh, designed it, Ray Dietrich, um, uh, when uh, Gibson were looking at the Fender uh, success and they wanted to compete, so they uh, commissioned Ray Dietrich, who was a famous uh, uh, car designer who had built all those amazing, you know, dig the Not fins. The Cadillacs. Ah, all, all oh, the great it has Chevys. A deco and, look yeah, to it, and, it? and so he basically <laughs> took one of those fins, if you can imagine, from, uh, and uh, worked it up into the firebed. And um, back in the day, when the Melody Maker, which was the, the mu- one of the two music newspapers uh, of in the sixties, they had a uh, ad section at the back, and people used to buy and sell guitars in there. And uh, I saw one day it said uh, Firebird guitar. I had no idea what a Firebird guitar was, and um, so I rang up and said, "That sounds good. Can I come around?" I went to this uh, amazing house in Regent's Park. And it, uh, it was the son of a very rich uh, American guys who'd come over from Kalamazoo. And they had bought their, their young son a um, red Gibson custom. Gibson farm. It's direct from the factory custom made because of most of them are brown. Right. And uh, he opened the door and, and he just like held the red fiber. I said, oh, my, yeah, that's mine. Thank you. <laughs> And the reason was I had um, had bought a Hofner Galaxy, which was red. That's all I could afford in the uh, in the early sixties, and uh, so red guitar. And I thought something flashy, you know, for for Roxy. But 
you know, when I joined Roxy, actually, they wanted me to to ditch my three three five and get a um, white Strat. So for the first album, who demanded that? Uh, you know, their style icons. You know, <laughs> who were running the band. Um, well, that's funny because back then, what oh, white Strat, I suppose, would be Hendrix. But otherwise, that you think white Fenders, you kind of think the Beach Boys. But it wasn't sort of Anthony <laughs> Price who decided what guitar people <laughs> yeah. had. To probably, um, <laughs> probably, you know, he gave me the glass, he gave me the look, you know. So he yeah. probably did decide. Um, but I, I was, I thought it was a bit dull, you know. So I, I eventually got my red fiber, and that's been my signature guitar, if you like. It forever. is your signature, yes. Yeah, and the can you play it sitting well? down? Can you play it sitting down? <laughs> Uh, because this yeah. doesn't have a little, it doesn't have a shelf. Well, it, it's, it's better than a than a flying V. That's all I yeah, can say. Right, which is impossible <laughs> to place. Well, there's a sort of interesting thing about the way that guitar looks and what Roxy was sort of doing at that time, which was a kind of pop art meets Americana. Was it? Which was interesting for you know, bloke yeah. from Newcastle as well. Well, it, it, at the time, it all has to be put in context, doesn't it? At the time. There was a famous films out the last picture show. There was a, a band called Shanana, like referencing yeah. the fifties. So there was, a, you know, a general acceptance of fifties kind of uh, culture and uh, fashion and stuff. And um, it, you know, Roxy was a mixture of all these incredible things put together by all lots of people. You know, to to do with Roxy, the. Uh, not only uh, Anthony Price, who you mentioned, yeah. the, the designer. There was Wendy Dagworthy making clothes. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was um, uh, Nick Deville, Nick Deville, of course, uh, who designed the the, the look of who the was sleeves. the art director, and of course a, a, a fellow student with Brian at Newcastle doing fine arts under Richard Hamilton. So uh, and great photographers and and all young people who were in their sort of mid twenties who were going to be the next. People who who fashioned fashion and who fashioned style. So Roxy was a kind of art collective, really, wasn't it? It, it, it was a Bauhaus, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a veritable Bauhaus. <laughs> Did you actually? I mean, Bauhaus. Should have done that song, really. <laughs> <laughs> did I mean did did all this stuff come together, or did you actually sort of sit down around the table and go right? This is what it's going to be. This is what the no, vision uh, the, is, or or did it just kind of organically? To be fair, you know, I come from a very different uh, place from all the others. I mean, I was didn't go to art school. You know, I was brought up in South America. Uh, you know, a totally different culture, and I hit upon these guys. I, I answered an ad in the Melody Maker and found myself. You know, I knew about Roxy because they had sent in their demo tape to Richard Williams at the Melody Maker, and he had written up a nice thing. And I had sent in uh, our school band, prog rock type thing, to Richard Williams. And, and, and Is that Quiet, quiet Sun? Quiet Sun. And the, the, the best thing about that was that Richard said, the best thing about this band is the uh, the blurb that was sent in with it, <laughs> because it was actually written by Ian McDonald, who became the editor of The Enemy wow. eventually, uh, who was the brother of the bass player in the band. Um, so I came to uh, an old, a bunch of older people who had been to university and, and had bank accounts and, and had a, a loan for the PA and all grown up and had cars, you know. And, and, well, so uh, where were you at that point when you say they were all grown up? What were you? Well, I, I, I was 20, you know, and, and I... Did you have I, a job or anything? Or? I, I had a job for about uh, two months as a temp for this... Um, a travel company that was trying to uh, recover like two million quid of in debts, and all the people were temps, and the, and they were making like sort of airplanes out of the invoices and things. <laughs> and uh, I had gone for an audition with Roxy and failed, 
Uh, and uh, they they got, but I, I made friends with them. I used to bump into them all over the place. And then um, when you say all over the place, go yeah, on. Well, yeah, what kind well, of yeah, what, what, what were the, the hangs? Yeah, in those yeah days? Exactly. Well, well just... at um, avant garde concerts at the, the QEH, you know, like what well, uh, Stockhausen? Not Stockhausen, <laughs> but uh, Terry Riley, uh, right, right, and, oh, and right. all those kind of things. I bump into Eno and uh, songs just in C. Yes, <laughs> in C was very popular then. Yeah, and Rainbow and Curved Air. Yeah, and that album. And um, some friends of mine did the light show for them. Uh, they got a, a gig at the Friends of the Tate Christmas party. So I went along with my friend to see the, the light show. And this um, tranny pulled up. Actually, I've got to say. Uh, Transit van. Transit van. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been a tranny if it had been a year later. I thought it was that Eno. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so it, it turned up and Brian was driving it. and uh, Andy Brian was, driving a transit yeah, van, yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, Andy was That's in the front seat. <laughs> and Paul was stuffed in there somewhere. And Eno, because being sort of not so tall, was sort of slotted in with the PA system in the back. And they... And Dave O'List was there, who was by then oh, was right. a guitarist, and he was a, a fantastic guitarist. Who was in, and probably still is, uh, in the band called The Nice, who you know had done very well. Which just started with Keith Emerson, yeah. Five, yeah. Five Bridges was it, the it, sort of first exactly. prog rock. And um, uh, anyway, the, the the doors opened, and they all were humping the the, the cab, these Turner cabinets in. And I thought, wow, they they don't have roadies, <laughs> and and poor chaps, they're having to bring the stuff in so i'm sort of about help and i noticed that dave wasn't helping because he'd been in a professional band before oh. and he was just <laughs> sitting there with a fag and so, watching them you know watching brian, brian ferry and brian and walking the, the gear in <laughs> and everything and, and uh, so it made contact again you know saying would you come down and uh, mix help mix the sound because in those days eno used to be in the audience mixing the sound yeah because he was a bit uh what, with, a, with a vs synthesizer or with his synthesizer and the mixing desk and uh, i don't think they allowed him on stage because he made everyone too nervous so and also there was <laughs> they were, yeah yeah moving on and yeah. um we haven't got all day here and um, Is that with the, because they didn't want to get poked in the eye with an ostrich feather <laughs> <laughs> it was pre all that gear and uh wearing all those uh amazing outfits um and there were no amps on stage so everything went DI'd into the mixing desk. And, God, that's uh, literally it. 50 years ahead of your time, because yes. that's where we are now. But, uh, yeah, in, in, conceptually, we were way ahead of our time, everyone going and, 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 and being mixed by Eno. But, of course, it was incredibly frustrating for people on stage because you were at the whim of what uh, Brian Eno wanted to do with the mixer. So, you know, if you couldn't hear yourself, tough. So they asked me, he said, can you come and mix the sound? I said, well, I've got no idea how to mix the sound. Um, he said, don't worry, Eno will teach you. So he went... So you'd uh, already failed your first audition. I'd failed the first audition, yeah. <laughs> a terrible cold. And they wanted somebody famous to help uh, launch the band. And But then I used to see in the Melody Maker, Dave O'Liss Roxy playing at the Friars Aylesbury or something. So wow. it obviously, like, probably got to them. They said, hang on, this is not going to work. Um, <laughs> so I went round to this um, a friend of theirs' house, which was sort of a derelict house, but had some electricity in Notting Hill, and uh, when I turned up, they said, oh, Dave hasn't turned up. His guitar's dead. Fancy having a go. But I had a sort of little premonition that something might be coming up. So I had learned all this stuff the uh, the night before because they'd done a John Peel show. I could hear, you know, what the songs were. I said, well, look, 
show me the chords or whatever. Thinking back on it now, there are only like two or three chords. <laughs> show me the chords and, I, and I'll play it. <laughs> so I play it and I'll just play it like just totally right. Well, okay, next one. So, you know, they thought, Jesus, this guy actually is bloody good. <laughs> Were you imposing a style? Did you have a style of guitar playing? Uh, no, I, I I was actually sort of like copying a bit right, what right, they'd played right. already. So I knew, you know, I didn't want to scare the horses, as they say. So um, so I played that. And then they said, well, uh, would you like to, to join? And so I joined on the... Uh, it was my birthday on the 31st of January. The, fir- the 4th of February I joined and the contract... Uh, Roxy contract is signed on the 14th of February and then six weeks later we're in the studio recording and then eight weeks later it was number four in the show 1972 so I just was in the right place at the right time but how lucky were they? <laughs> <laughs> well you did have an extraordinary sound I mean it's the, partly your style of playing but also yeah. live you went through Eno's I, did that enter on, go on to record that sort of? Did he know uh, mess with your sound on record? Oh yeah, no. In the first on the first album, Lady Tron. The end of Lady Tron is what we used to do live, which was basically I would uh, have a part of my signal would go to Eno to his VCS three, and he had two Revoxes going for tapes and things, and I had a Revox going, which this is very technical. Uh, we had modified by the same company that Floyd were using and all that, which is. Taylor Hutchinson, who you could change it. Uh, I've still got it. Um, cell sync and vary pitch and all sorts of stuff. So you could mess around live on stage. And, wow. you know, in those days, there weren't uh, presets from Japan that you could just use. Or, you know, you had to be very analog and very uh, BBC Radiophonics Workshop yeah, and, yeah. and actually do crazy things and stick. Nails in. Was it tape? Or was it like a Binson Ecorex, or was it? Was well, it, was they, it they are they're they're actual tape recorders. Tape recorders, for, for and then if you put uh, sticky tape on the capstan, it creates a fluttery sound, and that was something that was quite uh, uh, used quite a lot in Roxy, and just basically, you know, Eno was also very good at um, creating sounds out of nothing when they weren't hadn't invented samplers, they hadn't invented all these things, so it was being. Um, Creative on that subject, like the eight hundred one live album, yeah, yeah, right. Which of course is one of the great inspirations for me. In fact, mm. um, that because that that version of um, Tomorrow Never Knows, yeah, that great Bill McCormack intro, yeah, the bass intro is one of the first things that made me think. Do you know what the bass could be really interesting as an instrument, and I might stick with. <laughs> what it. you mean you hadn't heard Jack oh. Bruce? <laughs> no, but there, there was something about that that was. Yeah. Interesting. But uh, what always got me because I remember you saying that wasn't it that that. Um, there's all sorts of incredible sound effects and stuff that happen, and there's but there's one particular one. And you said, wasn't it because Eno just had a tape of random effects running through the song? Yes, yes. He he, he would. I've still got the the cassette tape actually. It, it says oh, wow. it says a picture, and it's, he's sort of written written on it birds or something. But but there was um, a bit of a Radio Four program. <laughs> Uh, with some Judy Dench or somebody reading something. There were birds. There were all sorts of random stuff. Yeah, and he set it going at the beginning of the track, you know, when it when it starts out. And the things just came in randomly. And there was a bit of backwards echo and all sorts of stuff, which, um, yeah, I mean, the it's whole of that was just... Of, a, there's just this one particular sound, which is so yes. perfect. So you think there's no way that's... I know, that's, it's just before again, the vocals but, come but, in, and it was total chance. Yeah. yeah, just by total fluke. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I guess in that sense, I mean, the F- Floyd was a bit of an influence, was it really? Were there found sounds or...? 
Well, I suppose so. I mean, but we weren't thinking, Floyd. You, you know, know, we were back think- to astronomy, Domini, and the way that starts. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, obviously that's incredible. I, you know, all that for me was. Uh, you know, meat and potatoes. I mean, I loved all that. You know, first. Because then you, you met that. David when you just got the gig, didn't you, at some <coughs> studio? No. What happened? Actually, when I was fifteen, uh, my father died in South America. We moved back full time to uh, London. My mother, a Colombian lady, and uh, when I was sixteen, going on seventeen, you know, I was. Uh, getting free education at Dulwich College, which is very nice of them. They paid for all my education uh, because my dad died. And um, I said, look, I will take A-levels and all that, but I don't want to go to uni. I want to become a professional rock musician. She said, hey, what is that? You know, could hardly speak English, (laughs) but poor mum, Columbia. Uh, um, uh, What's that? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. And uh, uh, my, my brother, who's eight years older than me, who been at Cambridge, said, um, look, I know this guy. He's just joined a band. He's a professional musician now. Let's go and talk to him. Ask him what you have to do to become a professional musician. So uh, he arranged a lunch, and that person was David Gilmore. <laughs> Story. So, so uh, you know, age 16, just about to go 17, we went and had lunch with him up in Earl's Court, uh, near the flat that he was living the in, troubadour, or the, 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 <laughs> no. opposite the the, the the block of flats where they used to mm. where he used to live. He he's he says uh, he can't remember what he said. It must have been good because five years later I managed to join Roxy. But I, I do remember after the lunch we pedals, pedals, just get lots of pedals, yeah. loads of pedals. Uh, pedals. They hadn't invented them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, we went back to his flat. He got his strat, put it in his case, and off he went to Abbey Road. You know, um, wow. for that album, well, the, the source full, source full source, of secrets. Source, you know, secrets, yeah. so we're talking like sixty-seven, uh, uh, January. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that I met him then. So years later, when we were recording For Your Pleasure up at Air Studios here, when it was an Oxford Circus, um, we started recording in Studio One. And in Studio Two, Chris Thomas was in there mixing Dark Side of the Moon. So, you know, I popped down, had a listen. I thought, wow, this is incredible. So I sent David a telegram saying, remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. And and from then onwards, so from 1973 onwards, we've been in contact with Marine Friends and, and you know, worked well, there, with him for and time. But there's always been quite a funny floor. It's one of those odd bands that, that there are bands that are linked and they're not always necessarily the obvious ones and there seems to seems to me to have always been this sort of Floyd Roxy connection there's, well there's the lot, other I mean, connection what are the other connections well there's a, there's a great odd one I remember yeah. of um, uh, when David gave me as a wedding present this 1960s stack knob fender mm. uh, jazz bass and when I got asked to play for Roxy music I took it up for the first rehearsal and it was at Phil's studio, and Phil said to me, I know that bass. And it turns out that ba- David had actually got the bass from Rick Wills, who was his childhood friend, who'd been the bass player in his first band, who then played bass. That's right, who I auditioned. For Roxy wow. back in the early 70s. So I actually brought what? this bass back to Roxy Music after 30 years or something. Yeah. And what is, where is the bass? What is the bass? I've got it at home. It's, it's, um, it's, it's very nice. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other connection <laughs> that you got... Chris Thomas, of course. ...that you don't know is yes, that... Before I joined Roxy, I had this band called Quiet Sun, and we were trying to make it, sending demo tapes and everything. And because we knew Robert Wyatt, me and Bill McCormick, and Robert knew Nick Mason, I actually had a telephone conversation with Nick asking whether he would be interested in producing Quiet Sun. Wow. But, of course, Nick did produce Robert Wyatt. 
He did produce Robert Wyatt, and actually Bill McCormick from yes. Quiet Sun played with Nick and Gary Window. How yeah. was it playing with with all those kind of you know let's say egos? You know, these are this is a these are big people in there. Yeah, but when you start, there aren't you know you you've got you're like the three, four, five musketeers. It's all for one and one for all. And then eventually, you obviously, start impaling each other. <laughs> you <laughs> never really had a bass player, did you? No, because unfortunately, you know, Graham Simpson, who was Brian's friend from uni and was a credible musician, fantastic musician. Yeah. Um, he went he, a bit... Uh, he, he had uh, some mental problems just after we recorded the first album. So that, that... And then we had a problem. We had to find someone to play bass. So then one reason or another, either we wanted to change bass players or, or we didn't, or they left because John Wetton, who's a fantastic bass player, would have, we would have liked to have him be a member, but he suddenly one day said, I'm joining your eye heap. I'm yeah. off because they're flying around in jets. And, you know, right, we said, right, well, right. oh, dear, we're just about... Uh, Oh, yeah, I was the eleventh. Were you eleventh? I think there's been thirteen. 13 yeah. yeah, yeah, I remember you saying thirteen yeah, and yeah. out. And I it was actually because I was in a Roxy documentary and I was asked <laughs> what it was like playing bass for Roxy Music, and I said, <laughs> put it this way, you don't want to take a mortgage out based on being Roxy Music's bass player. <laughs> <laughs> but, no. but you know, I remember seeing Virginia playing. You know, you yeah. guys doing that on top of the pops. And, a lot of people. The next. You know, well, mm. two days after mm. when it was Saturday, I went straight up, bought that record. Yeah. It made such an impression on me. The sound, I still to this day can't work out what yeah. instruments are playing what. It, it was, it, and well, you started what? with this. Re- it starts with this really incredibly quiet keyboard part, isn't it? A guitar part, and then suddenly the volume all comes on. Well, yeah, it wasn't recorded for the first album. We didn't have a single. They said, "Where's where, no, where the single?" This is the thing that's amazing. Is sorry, is that that song? Is that when you've got an album and people saying there isn't an obvious single? No. You need to go and write, do an obvious single. And you come back with Virginia Plain, a song that literally just says, what's her name, Virginia Plain? That, and that's the hook. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, tell us about really? it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so daring. And out- yeah. You know, at the time... Daring is the word, yeah. Well, at, at the time, it wasn't seen as being cool to have a single, so having a pop single. You know, we're talking about the Zeppelin days yeah, and all, yeah. just coming just before us. And, um, you know, Brian said, well, I've got this thing. It's got three chords, you know, so let, let's do it. And uh, we had all loved... Motown and all those great singles. And so he said, let's try and do a single that's under three minutes. So we had made a big point that it was only going to be two minutes, 52 seconds and try and get it all in. And it really does encapsulate everything about that early Roxy in two minutes and 52. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. 
Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Which is wonderful. The lyrics, the playing, the sounds. And it's incredibly simple. You know, it is just guitar, bass, drums and still and Eno synths. And, and voice. Basis. And, Basis and, and obviously saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> Silly me. And oboe. Um, but uh, th- th- there's very few ingredients. And that's why it sounds great. It's because it's big and fat and, and, and just works. And it's analog. And the look. And all played the, together. The glam look. I mean, because you, you, you toured mm. with Bowie, didn't you? For a, yeah. For supporting no, was, Bowie at the Rainbow, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think we only play with him about twice or three oh. times, but he was incredibly supportive and, 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 and nice. And, uh, you know, when uh, I remember at rehearsals, Andy and Brian had been to see him, and I think that influenced a lot that we had to step up our game in terms of presentation. And, and in fact, we then got his lighting guy, uh, and in those days, he was the first person to have these sort of scaffolding things on right, small yeah. stages with some actual theatre lights. And people didn't have that before. So, um, he had Mick Ronson up on a gantry somewhere, didn't he, on some scaffolding? The band were sort of... That's around. right. So and we had his guy. We used his guy. And so, you know, all those kind of cumulative things helped. And obviously then we upped our game with... Uh, we were all a bit shy, so we said, let's just put on costumes as if you're in the theatre or something like that and, and become different people when yeah. you go on stage. So you, you turn up with sort of drab clothes and then suddenly in the dressing room. But it was, wasn't coordinated or anything like that. It was totally... Everybody did their own thing, found their own people. And the first time we saw what we were each wearing was when we literally changed before going on stage. Really? And they said, you're not going to wear... What is that? You're wearing that? You know, to, you know, or something. Did you ever both be wearing the same? I can't go on stage. He's wearing the same snakeskin. <laughs> never, <laughs> never. Anthony Price then came along, no, didn't he? And he well, kind of Anthony, coordinated it. Well, oh, the Wendy Dagworthy as well. Oh, Dagworthy. You know, in those early days, because all the outfits on the second album cover were Wendy Dagworthy. Well, actually, no, mine, Brian's. Enos was done with Carol McNichol. You talk about the, the, the centrefold. Yeah, the centrefold. Yeah. For your pleasure. So it, it was, you know, a variation of lots of people making stuff. And it was just the juxtaposition of it all together that created a whole. And it's the same with the music. You know, it's yeah. everyone playing little pits and little bubbles coming. You know, the bubble coming out of my head was I'm in the Velvet Underground and the early Pink Floyd. I'm playing this way. And I don't, whatever you're playing over there, this is what I'm playing. Right, you know, this I'm, is almost like a, Eno's cards. Isn't yeah, it? Yes. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the bleak it's like you, you drew the Pink Floyd one or whatever. Well, uh, the, the, you know, the, the psychedelic 60s and right. soft machine well, and, and, and all that fuzzed up stuff. Also, what, what, uh, how easy was it getting Tomo into those outfits? Because who's the most wonderful down-to-earth... Yeah, great, wonderful, great drummer. What a drummer. The great Paul Thompson. Yeah, the great... Wonderful down-to-earth guy. And that's when we go here, you're in this sort of leopard skin cat suit. Yeah, I, I, I think it was, it, was, it was challenging for <laughs> yeah, him. Exactly. It was challenging for him. But, you know, to give him total credit, you know, he was the person who kept it all together. You know, because yeah. if you hadn't had that that guy whose hero was John Bonham playing, it would have been all over the place. And that gave us our rock sort of basis, you know. Andy Newmark tells this great story <laughs> that he was staying in Blake's or whatever, uh, Sumlin Hotel, and um, John Bonham came in. And he heard, they said, oh, Roxy Music's drummer is here. Yeah. 
and there was and there was this banging on the door, and Andy opened the door, and John Bonham grabbed him and threw him up against the wall, and went, "You're not Paul Thompson." <laughs> oh, really? Because <laughs> yeah. Andy Newmark's one of the great drummers as well. Well, exactly. Young yes. Americans, yeah. Well, and, and Lennon's album, uh, yeah, yeah, and the rest, yeah, 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 yeah everything. Playing yeah. <laughs> the family stone. Yeah. When 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 Eno left, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's to be honest, it's a, it's a little bit because it was shocking at the time as a punter, as yes. me as a fan. And as I thought, a, my, you know, even though Brian wrote all the songs, mm. you know, you saw Ian, uh, Eno as some sort of mastermind. You know, mm. it's a bit, a bit like um, the guy, the guy in, in in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Frank and Furter. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and yet um, a bit like Genesis when when Peter left, mm. and and then they went on to become world famous. Mm. The same sort of thing happened to Roxy, really, didn't it? Because your biggest selling part of your career was was post Eno and, and yeah. going into the eighties. Well, Brian always said, "Well, I like is that mm. is that Eno says that his favorite album is the third one, is the one after he left." That's right. Yeah, that's very Eno. <laughs> I know. That's that, very Eno. That's very Eno. Oblique. <laughs> yeah, oblique. But um, yeah, it, it was. You know, I was very friendly, and and we were sharing uh, an apartment, a flat at the time. So it, it was quite traumatic uh, that Why he did left. He leave? Um, for he lots of was, reasons. Yeah. One, one of them, I like the fact, wasn't it? He said he was on stage and thinking about his washing. Oh, yeah. When you find yourself on stage thinking about your washing, you know it's washing. time to leave yeah. <laughs> the band. I, I have felt that a few times. Yeah, I remember that years. when we go on tour this year. <laughs> yeah. Well, we yeah. are in our own shirts. We do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think about your washing when I'm on stage. <laughs> I think about your uh, smalls. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not coming to see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> No, go on. Well, you know, let's carry on. Uh, El, you know, Eno leaves, and it's, it's Eno leaves. But uh, obviously, I don't leave working with Eno. So you know, I continue working with Eno in parallel with Roxy. You play so on solo records for the next four years. So, that, but that must have been so great because you had Eto One, you had Roxy. I mean, it must have been amazing having just you, you must so um, sort of creatively sated. Well, the, 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 actually, uh, that period, I don't know how we all fitted in so much stuff. There were solo albums. Yes, there Brian, were Brian's having smash it solo yeah. records. Brian's doing, you know, the, the album that's just come out at the Albert Hall, which I didn't realise I played on. I, I, I played on with an orchestra in 1974. It's just come oh, out. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's... Yeah, Sounds absolutely good. terrific, you know. And, and you I, played on that. And that's I Brian played on that. Uh, yeah, he, he said to me, uh, oh, yeah, it's coming out, you know, and you're on it. I said... No, I, I, surely I only came off one number. No, no, you were on the whole thing. Really? I was. I had no recall of it at all. It sounds absolutely terrific. Is there another guitar? Is it, was it yeah, Spedding, and, Spedding as no, well? No, no, it's oh, John nice. Porter. Wow. Because John Wetton played bass on it. Oh. Uh, no, and John Porter, incredible guitarist. Um, this podcast comes with a glossary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and an index. index. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, there's too many John things. John Wetton, look it all up. It's yeah, all yeah, out the there sunshine somewhere. boy then. No, that was Arnie Shecklestein. <laughs> yeah. Arnie Shecklesberg was a <laughs> Yeah, but we're, we're, uh, Andy did a solo album. Brian did loads of solo albums. You know, I've Andy actually, did solo. Oh, no, uh, and later wasn't it? No, did. no. Well, he did do, Rock Follies. No, he did. Well, he did that yeah. uh, when I was doing um, Eight Hundred One. But uh, no, he had done uh, his first solo album, Resolving Contradictions. Of course, of course, of course Eno yes. plays on Eight Hundred One with you. Yeah, you know, and I played on it all. Well, you had a nice I, point of. Uh, I remember oh. you, you saying to me about how the point of Eight Hundred One wasn't it was the idea was it was kind of like it, it was it was a band of two parts and that had these absolute uber musos. It was meant to be and an then, experiment between yeah. musicians and non-musicians. So we chose I think, yeah, three non-musicians. The lady doth protest too much. Yes. and me in the middle as sort of referee. And it was only designed to last six weeks. It was meant to play three gigs, only played two. Recorded one of them 
and and that album is what. You see the way you just described that. That that sounds so much like an actual art project, doesn't it? <laughs> right, we can do this thing. It's going to be six yeah, weeks. Yeah. Gonna, you know, I mean yeah. that, re- that. I mean that really is art. You set the boundaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what's what it occurs to me is that everything was done very quickly. Which, very quickly. Which kind of that started everything started to slow down as we went into the eighties and mm. later on, where people would take four years to make an album. Mm. You guys would, you must have been recording really fast with, and Brian must have been writing very quickly as well. Absolutely, and going on tour immediately and not finishing the album, having to drive back from the gigs, you know, every night to try and finish the album and then go back to the gigs. So, yeah, I mean, it was quite a quite a prolific. A, prolific. It was very prolific. And, uh, you know, in those days, really, I think technology has changed everything because once you start getting more and more tracks that you can play with and um, you spend more and more time in the studio and and, less in a rehearsal room yeah and by the time you know we got to uh, Avalon you know uh, we were recording at my studio I had my own studio and we were using the studio as an instrument so it moved on from actually playing in the conventional way of doing backing tracks and then just overdubbing your bits and and mixing it to and by that time we'd done yeah, Avalon's album number eight, and you wanted to do something different every mm. time. So how do you do something different? You change your method of working, and it's and it's a risk. And Avalon occurred because of that. You know, all it's, sorts of things. You like. once said to me, uh, because I for some reason I always thought it was Brino who'd coined Eno who'd coined this phrase, but you said it was actually this, this idea of using the studio as an instrument kind of came from Ten CC. It did come from, yeah, because uh, when I started building my studio in 1977 or something, I was doing it with Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream. Oh, right. uh, and they had had their studio up in Manchester, Strawberry uh, Studios. Yeah. And, yeah, they had been using, you know, the, the, because the way, as I said before, there weren't preset sounds you could just buy or sampling or something. So you use whatever you could in the studio. Use the desk to use the faders up and down or they as they invented new bits of studio gear uh, you were able to do this thing called triggering which was using a gate oh, right, right, gate, course, yeah. and then using that in conjunction with uh, faders and, yeah. and you created things AMS. and you slowed down tapes yeah. ADT yeah, yeah. ADT and you mul- you know obviously they multi-tracked you know I'm not in love and all those hundreds of voices yeah. and stuff like that so, yeah, there was a bit of... I was working with them bef- uh, in 1976 or seven. We formed a band with... Uh, Another Godley. band? How many bands do you want? Godley and, <laughs> Godley and Cream, yeah. And, and you were it, in... It, you played with them? Yeah, and they recorded oh, an album. You turned to Appendix 3. <laughs> yeah, we need one. Of, is it Pete Frame? <laughs> yeah, Pete, yeah, exactly. Pete Frame's rock and roll tr- rock family yeah, tree. Yeah, family tree would be a book in itself. Well, when we stopped working together after the Siren Tour in 1975, 76... And Brian went off uh, to do. What was his the decision on that? By the way, was, there was, no was decision. it just like we all hate each other? Yeah, there, there was no we? decision. You know, with Roxy, there's no plan or nothing. Everyone just goes off and does things, and then randomly things happen. No one phones you. No one phones anyone, <laughs> and, and say, "Oh, well, it's not around. Okay, better do something else." So I was living next door to Kevin Godley. Let's let's do something. We got a deal. We had a GCM very. <laughs> Godly cream and Manzanera started recording and everything, and then then one day Brian rang up and said, "Can we get Roxy back together again?" I said, "Well, I've just yeah, I'm now, just, I'm just, now I'm just in another <laughs> band, and don't worry, you could do both at the same time." I said, "Oh, okay, well I'll do that then." 
So, but then we decided to go and record Roxy in New York. So we actually couldn't do it. So you had to extract time. the M. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> M disappeared, and it became the Golden Cream album. Let's 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 have uh, a bit more of your of, of your moving into your guitar playing with with David again. I mean, just yeah. and how that sort of started. Did, did David call you and think, "Hey, you're the kid I you know I once had tea with. Can I can what? I get you in my band?" No, um, we um, saw each other. You know, and I actually ended up co-writing a track on right. a Momentary Lapse of Reason. Of course it's so you had called, that, another so, connection. So uh, he used to come, I, when I had the studio on church, he used to come at Christmas. I used to have a Christmas sing-song, carols, and so he used to come with the family. So I used to see him every year. And then um, I once went up to uh, Super Bear in France when they were recording The Wall. So, uh, so um, you know, I kept in in touch over the years as a, as a friend. And uh, then by some quirk of fate, ended up living next door to him out in the country. And so we saw more of each other. And then he hadn't uh, recorded anything for quite some time. And he said, fancy, you know, having a listen to some stuff. And that's how it started. And, and so, you know, over a period of 10 years. So you were listening to demos that he had? Yeah. And bits and pieces. And then over a period of 10 years, you know, we did uh, the first one, which was on an, on, on an island. Yeah. Then we went on tour, didn't we, um, yeah. Guy? Yeah. And, and we did uh, Live in Gdansk, which was the live arm that came out. And then I... I remember that night. Yeah, but, well. that's right, I remember that night. And then then we did... Um, I think in between, I did the um, Endless River, yeah. which is Dave, that, that Pink Floyd thing. And then... Um, the last one, Rattle That Knot. Yeah. And that was so like suddenly 10 years had gone by. And do you think being a guitarist is was is why David used as as a producer? that you could, No. And how do you advise what what, what he well, plays? No, because you, yeah. You, yeah, you have to make sure that if you're coming up with ideas, you don't come up with any guitar ideas for a start. Yeah, right. So, you know, I it, my job was like a facilitator, you know, to try and help somebody to that as a producer that's what i do it's not about me it's about them so i would look at things and say you could put this together with that if you want to uh, and actually i'll go to my studio and i'll do you it. mean that little bit of demo yeah, yeah with, with that little bit of demo. yeah so well, i would go and do that and, the, and then you know he'd say what's that i said well actually that's what you played because the funny thing is that is it seems to me there's a, a thing practically all of david's songs right in the last <laughs> album terms all have at least one component which is recorded sort of on some really unusual thing in a way. It's either, for instance, the SNCF jingle, which he recorded on his phone, or there's a bit of piano that was recorded on a mini disc in 2002, but it has to be that one. It can't be replaced. Or there'll be something that was on a wax disc from... You know, I mean, but it's true. There's always some, one component, yes. which is a really unusual, weird thing that he recorded, and you have to keep that moment. That's somehow. right. But, so yeah. you grab it all and put it all into a computer? And... Uh, well, I um, listened to hundreds of little bits, and say maybe bit number 84 could go with bit number 17. And then you could, or if you wanted to, you could put bit number 102 at the end. And, 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 and I'll show you how you could do it. This is what it would sound like. And these bits include vocal melody? No, not all of them. But, but some of them have, yeah, they, they have some scatting. It's a bit like being creative. You have to think, how could this work? You know, what kind of... So, you know, I would apply the sort of Roxy principle of the context... The sound context. What what kind of context? What kind of visual uh, soundscape does this evoke? Right. And try and put a little hint of that in, and see whether he would respond to that and and take it 
you know, take it up and take it further and do what he's meant to do because it's his album. And, and you know, can well, I... Also, because I, I, I do know a couple of sneaky little things that you have done with it because it's... Uh... Because one of the challenges with it is that uh, nothing's ever slow enough for David, is it? He's very unusual in that regard. He's the, he's the only guitarist I've ever known who just wants to always slow things down. Frankly, we'd still be finishing Comfortably Numb at the Albert Hall <laughs> if it was up to him. Well, Floyd time. Well, Robert yeah. Wyatt used to call... So what, what, were you connecting that with something that Phil had done? Well, no, Phil was quite... Yeah, because things would sort of suddenly be a bit faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've always, you know, my Latin side comes out and I love love rhythm. And so even with rock, I say, can we just get that going let's, a bit more, you know. Let's just, move on to that just a bit yeah, because yeah. because that is so important to you. You know, you grew up in, in South various parts of South America. Cuba, Venezuela. Colombia. Colombia. Why? Hawaii. What, what happened? <clears throat> when I was... You were um, on the run? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was on the run, actually. Um, especially out of Cuba after the revolution. Um, when I was six, my dad was posted to Havana. And so we're talking 1957. So, you know, if you've been, you've been to, to Cuba, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, the rhythms, you know, it's all comes from Africa. So it's to do with religion as well, Santeria. It's about dancing. And then in Cuba, you also get the classical influence. So you get a very, mu- the most musical island in the whole Caribbean. And, you know, if as a child you're taken to the Tropicana Club and, and you hear this amazing music, you know, and all these people who were at their prime when uh, I was be- taken there as a child, Celia Cruz and all these people. Oh, wow. So uh, and my mother being sat from Colombia, from Barranquilla, which is the Caribbean coast where cumbia comes from, and she was always dancing, always singing. And, you know, she started having guitar lessons, so she started teaching me how to play some Cuban songs and South american songs that, you know, I know off by heart. Uh, and it's part of the, the Latin culture, really. And um, so that was my background. And then I started listening to England on the World Service, on the radio, and said to my parents, send me to London. I want to go to London, you know, because there were some English boys who came out of South America who were at boarding school here and showed me some Chuck Berry riffs and things like that. So, Wow, this is but hang so cool. on prog rock, quiet sun, and that yeah, does yeah. you couldn't get further away. Could no, you? well, that's because Straight when I went up middle class English rock music. <laughs> when I went to Dulwich in South London, and Bill McCormick knew Robert Wyatt and used to see him like after school on his way back home every and night. Soft machine was soft huge. machine was huge, so that was incredibly influential you know, of experimental rock and psychedelia. It was all happening. And um, improvisation. It was all about improvisation. And that was the time in the 60s when the Grateful Dead and people would just play, just play one riff and then play for mm-hmm. a half an hour, whatever, and then come back to the riff at the end, you know, and Cream and all those bits sort of people. Well, interstellar Overdrive is... Well, yeah, Interstellar Overdrive, yeah. yeah. So, so conditioned by all that. So my South Americaniness didn't come out till I went back to that at the end of the 80s and started working well, with South well, American music. Yeah, but Av- Avalon still has, has a little bit of that going on, doesn't well, it? Well, the actual track Avalon does, yeah. yeah. Oh, true enough. Because you, but you, also, you produce a lot of South American bands, don't you? Lots a lot of, a, a lot of uh, rock in Espanol, as they call it, yeah. because I speak Spanish, I understand the words. And at one point, at the beginning of the 90s, I was unbelievably the only British or American producer who could s- produce and, in Spanish you know, who understood what the people were singing about and had the expertise, which I'd learned from 
Chris Thomas and the George Martin and the Air School of, of recording, um, of how to record albums. So I became, by default, the number one <laughs> producer of rock in Espanol. And many of the artists that I produce have gone on and are now huge in America, in South America, in Spain. They're like the Bowie of South America, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Annie Lennox of South America. And they I ended up producing what have become like absolutely classic rock albums in Espanol. I've never ever heard a song in Spanish that does not have the word Corazon in it. It does seem to be... <laughs> what does that mean? It means heart. But uh, oh. I've literally never heard... The word Corazon I've ever always come up somewhere. Song. In fact, the ones when I worked in Cuba on, on yeah. with Cuban musicians, I wrote a song in Spanish and I just said, I don't care what it says, but it obviously has to have the word Corazon in it. And the person translating the lyrics said, yeah, sure, fine. <laughs> Even when The Clash... Have one little Spanish bit. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. Um, which they, which, which they, they learned from. I think it's from Mick Jones's Cleaner. Yeah. They um, uh, and Spanish bombs. There's Joe mm. sings like a stanza of Spanish, and it's got Corazon in it. Really? Corazon <laughs> <laughs> yeah. doesn't really work for me. It sounds like a toilet cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does work for me. Another <laughs> people like Corazon. Spotless. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we're running out of time. Yeah, yeah. We have run out of time. And, Good. And, but we'll Beep. spend the rest of our lives talking yeah. together. But uh, <laughs> as far as you people out there are concerned, this is it. Uh, with, with Phil Manzanera and, and this episode of, of Rock on Tours. And if you have a question for a guest or for myself and Gary, then don't forget you can get in touch with us by emailing guyandgary at thepodcastworks.com. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. All the best. That was great.